Hey, welcome back to another edition of Aikman Bros Podcast. I'm James Aikman. I'm Andrew Aikman. So kind of just keeping on with the questions. Uh, something that we talk about a lot uh, is kind of what separates us from a typical zoo. And so first thing is the drive-through. Most zoos do not have a drive-through component. So we are Illinois' first and only drive-through park. So the drive-through is a big difference, but just on the walk-through side, we really wanted people to walk in and see how big the habitats were and to have habitats bigger than what you would find at a lot of zoos. And so I think we have been able to accomplish that for the most part. We get a lot of comments from people about how much they love how big of areas the animals have. Well, and I think especially when you compare us to, so there are, there are a lot of drive-throughs out across the nation, but a lot of them are kind of a lot less known, I guess. And then if they do have a walkthrough component, it is more times than not a little on the, I guess, depressing side, if you want to put it that way, in terms of just the size of the enclosures or kind of just how they, it was almost like the walkthrough was an afterthought in terms of the drive-through component. Is there main focus and then the walkthrough was just kind of an afterthought. So we definitely, when we decided that we wanted to have both parts to our park, our facility, we definitely made a conscious effort to put just as much focus and attention to the walkthrough side as the drive-through side. So um, definitely we could have done way more quantity over quality from an animal standpoint in terms of putting, bring, having more animals in the walkthrough. But then that takes away space that we just weren't weren't wanting to compromise on in terms of the larger um, habitats and enclosures that we have here. So that definitely, you know, some people might see that as a negative in terms of when they come here, they're expecting X amount of number of animals here. But we look at it as a positive in terms of like going back to our motto, if we can't provide a better home for an animal uh then we have no right of taking that animal so it kind of always goes we've always chosen quality of life over quantity of animals yes yep so uh next up sable is our 501c3 nonprofit. every fall we have an annual fundraising banquet and so this past friday night was our toast to wildlife 2021 uh it was our biggest and best event ever i think uh our biggest event prior was about 70 people and so this one we were at about 125 so close to almost doubling what we had done in the past uh, we had a wide variety of stuff for the silent and the live auction and i think i think we grossed around thirty-two thousand dollars, and so we'll have some few expenses that'll come out of that but definitely our best banquet so far yeah this year the focus was kind of geared towards the kind of the new wolf kind of facility that we're uh building the wolf dog facility um so definitely the money that was raised for that is going to help quite a bit mr big spender over here i think was so one of the top bidder one of the new things this year that we haven't been able to do in years past is um we had some custom one-of-a-kind artwork pieces uh that went in the live auction um one of our team members did and we had zero we had clue no idea even, how, just how talented even paint 
how talented she was. Uh, so those were kind of um, very eye-catching pieces that, uh, like I said, years past, we kind of we always kind of struggle in terms of just having enough stuff and reaching out to enough places in time to get um, get different items ready for the silent and live auction. And this year, we were very blessed to have that in our own kind of in-house. We were able mm -hmm. to have that be a part of it. And yeah, there was a piece that she did with one of our wolf dogs, Alpha, that I was didn't think I was going to have to go that deep in my pockets. But uh, the way I justified in a roundabout way, if Sable does well, then that's just added job security for me. So uh, I was more than happy to pay for pay for that and help contribute to the overall total of the night. And, and I know most of you are probably wondering, but I did check and he did not use the park credit card to pay for it. I thought about it, but <laughs> maybe next year I can pull that prank on him. So overall, it was a great night. Uh, we had a lot of people compliment on, uh, we had Brian Badger from the Cheetah Conservation Fund talk. People loved listening to him. Our oh, auctioneer yeah. was great, and we get positive comments on him each year. And so I think people had a lot of fun well then at the end of it uh that group was the first group to be able to preview the pathway of lights uh kind of have those all ready for them and everyone had a great time in terms of between kind of the meet and greet that we did in the very beginning we had some of our smaller animals uh like our sugar glider was out um our snake was out so they were kind of able to see a few hands-on experiences if they were brave enough to do that and then like I said, we had a good, good hot meal and it's a good night overall. Yep. So already, already looking forward and planning for the, the next one next year. And one thing, just real quick, I want to touch base back on that first question. I feel like the other thing that somewhat separates us from other zoos is just the fact that we are a family owned park. So the, the kind of environment that we try to showcase is a very, laid back, but also family oriented. So, um, you know, the customer is always, always right. And we always try to do whatever we can in our power to make the people, the guests have the best experience that they possibly can. So that has been customer service has always been a huge thing for us. And I feel like that is another thing that really does kind of separate us from some of the more larger zoos that, you know, maybe some stuff falls through the cracks. Um, intentionally or unintentionally whatever the case may be but we do try to go out of our way to kind of make sure that every single person that comes here has the the best possible experience that they that they possibly can so just one yeah. thing that i thought about yeah uh do we have any mentors when we knew we were going to open the park we had a lot of naysayers <laughs> yeah so I'm big into research and information, and I called uh, one in Missouri and one in Ohio, other drive-through parks, to try to kind of get information from them, and they would not tell me anything. And so I ended up calling one down in Texas, and the guy asked me for my zip code. I told him, he said, well, you're about 18 hours away. I guess I can share some information with you. And so kind of what we found out was that these places bring in people from about a six to seven hour radius. And at the time, even though my background was business, that was like not even on my radar, uh, other than if it's an internet type of business, because I didn't think about people traveling that far for a business. But 
those place in Missouri and Ohio were viewing us as competition. Yep. And uh, so they didn't really want to do anything to help us out when we first got started. And so uh, I started talking to other facilities way far away. Uh, we did have, I think we've mentioned it before, there's a guy in Arthur who was at one point the director of the one of the zoos, I think in Switzerland, maybe. Yep. And he also was one of the many people that played a role in kind of how Disney's Animal Kingdom was set up. And he's the reason why our walkthrough has curved paths, kind of just like our drive-through does. Um, but other than that, it's kind of mainly us learning. I mean, a lot of people could say that I was Andy's mentor, I think. Yeah, I don't know about that. More so <laughs> the person that would tell me, hey, we actually are going to change this this time. So, no, no there's a lot of, lot of learning, on learning on the fly. And basically just if we had a question, if we couldn't find someone to answer that question, that again goes back to us kind of being able to think a little bit outside the box and between the two of us. And then also when we started to get some of the other team members involved, like Daniel bringing in other opinions and kind of uh, past experience with certain things and situations, it just kind of a big combination of, you know, if you have a problem, there's always a solution. There's always multiple solutions to it. It's just kind of figuring out what the right one is. So that's kind of, where we have a slight advantage in terms of, you know, me and him, we, we go back and forth quite a bit when it comes to arguing different viewpoints. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's all to strengthen the, the best viewpoint possible. And usually it's kind of a combination of my idea and his idea. Um, and then that goes the same for our, our team here. So definitely other than the person he just mentioned, it was kind of us against the world there in the very beginning. Well, and we've always felt that between those of us that are on the team, there's usually nothing that we can't figure out. Right. And everybody brings different ideas to the table. That's where him and I would kind of butt heads the most, yelling at each other most. Actually, he's yelling and I'm probably laughing for the most part. I'm not really a big yeller, but uh, both have different ideas. And usually through that fighting, arguing, yelling, laughing, we come to something that's an even better idea and so well it also helps that within a 20 30 mile radius around us we have just a tremendous amount of different resources to pretty much get everything we need yeah so that that definitely helps the situation with not having kind of a, a specific person there to kind of guide us through this process i mean it's not very many people out there will build or buy a formal former amusement park slash botanical gardens and then completely turn it into an animal park so there's not not very many uh how-to books on that so you kind of just have to hit the ground running and we would be lying if we said that we haven't had to go back and kind of fix certain th certain things uh so let us know if you'd be interested in a how-to book for that we can yeah see what we can work <laughs> on we can get our people to work on that yeah but there, now there's a Facebook page for kind of uh, zoo and park owners and directors that both of us are a part of. And yeah. So we have been able to see What's what that? other people are doing or bounce ideas off of that. That, so that has been a couple helpful. years ago that that would have been created. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah. Now that that, I mean, if that would have been such a thing that we would have had access to in the very beginning, then it could have answered some of those more, uh, questions that are specifically related to a wildlife park that, like I said, there's just, there's nothing out there, but, but yeah, having that now we're able to kind of have a little more of a sounding board to ask questions or just like the giraffe that we're hoping to have in a couple of years, you know, we were able to make that connection with that um, park over in New York and be able to kind of ask them specific questions about that. So those sort of things, those doors have opened up over the last few years, but in the beginning it was pretty slim pickings in terms of resources from a person standpoint. Well, and him and I, we don't really have a, a zoo background, although we did have a petting zoo as our first business in our grandparents shed when we were I don't think guinea pigs, six guinea grade. pigs and rabbits don't count, but that aside uh usda has kind of confirmed it for us in talking with them working with them them taking pictures of things we do we don't have that zoo background so it's almost like we can look at things differently we're not looking at it as well this is what we've always done or this is what people always do we're just looking at it what makes the most sense efficiently and logically from the animal standpoint or from our standpoint for caring for the animal and so that definitely helps add to the fact that we're already outside the box thinkers yeah. anyway and so we've been able to do things not necessarily that they're innovative some might be considered innovative but usda does take pictures of a lot of stuff we do to share with other facilities that have been around for much longer than what we have yeah but we've definitely learned a lot at this point we'd feel comfortable with just about any animal out there or at least have an idea of what we'd need to do for an animal. We have an introduction process that we use for our drive-through side and right. have implemented that on the walk-through side as well. So yep. I'd say our, our own research has been our biggest help in doing this. For sure. And God has played a part in it as yep. well. So we would not be here if it wasn't for that but uh so kind of also continuing with our animal spotlight we're talking about our elands uh elands are the largest antelope on the planet they're native to africa we have uh where do our elands come from so ellie our big female came from an amish drive-through park in northern indiana uh came with her wildebeest and our chapman zebra they had them didn't really want to take them through another winter. And so she came. When they're part of the original, I mean, they came yeah. November of 2015. So just a, a couple months after we acquired the property. So and then our male Eland uh, came from a, a facility in South Dakota. I believe uh, they just did not want another male Eland to compete with the males they already had. I think he came in as a three-year-old, maybe two, two or three years ago. I think. Yeah, I think it was two years. And then the picture you see up there, that's Marky Mark. And so he came from when Ellie and the male fell in love, and then that's what happens. So yeah. Marky Mark was born here. So we don't consider ourselves a breeding facility by any means, but with some of the, especially the antelope species and the deer species, it's, it's kind of one of those things that I guess we could experiment with it, but from a like from a castrating standpoint with the males, 
there are adverse reactions to certain animals, especially when it comes to like horn growth and just um, certain different kind of hormonal changes that we just haven't felt comfortable enough going down that avenue. So we try our best throughout the year to kind of, if we are able to be in a position to separate males and females, we can. Um, like I said, we don't necessarily plan on babies happening or anything like that. Um, we were a little kind of surprised that this actually did happen because Ellie is definitely an older animal. Um, what she would be, is she 10 years old 10. now? Yeah. So she's a 10 year old. So she would have gave birth, uh, when she was nine, eight, eight, nine, um, is when she would have gave birth, which as far as we know, that was her one and only child that or baby that she has given birth to. So being a nine, eight year old, nine year old, that is very old to have your first, first, uh, kind of offspring. Um, so we weren't quite sure if there was even a issue where she was actually infertile or anything like that, but come to find out that, uh, she was pregnant. She gave birth to Marky Mark. Um, so again, that's kind of how those sort of situations happen. I have no idea if we will, if they will ever get pregnant again or not at the moment, she is not pregnant. Um, so it's just kind of one of those things that if it kind of happens, it happens, but we do try our best to kind of minimize that. Just going back to the fact that, you know, our drive-through space is X, X amount big in terms of square footage acreage. And we kind of always have to make sure that we're maintaining a decent relationship between animals grazing on it and the grass that we have growing. So we don't, overgraze um or anything like that but if you're wondering where the name marky mark came from we talked about our sable banquet earlier one of the things we try to do there is auction off naming rights to one or two new animals that might have come in that year and uh, a friend of mine got the naming rights for him and wanted to name him marky so we added the mark to it to make it sound a little more normal and that was actually kind of the the last naming right thing that names came back a little questionable so after that we instituted the rule where you you submit three names and then we'll pick the the name that best right. suits it but well another little interesting fact about marky mark uh, specifically is so when he was born we noticed almost immediately that ellie was not producing the amount of milk that she needed to produce uh so that put Which us might have been partly because of her age could have been because of her age so that put us in a little bit of a unique situation um when it comes to deciding if something's going to be a bottle baby or not usually uh if it is a male and especially if it's an animal that has horns as it gets older it is not a good idea to bottle feed whatsoever because uh, usually those animals become some of the most dangerous animals out there as they get older, personalities change. They don't have kind of that initial um, hesitation when it comes to people. If they have been around people all their lives getting bottles and stuff, they actually uh, look at you as just another another Elon type of thing. So, so in order when we knew that we had no other option but to bottle feed him, we kind of had to do something that we've never tried before and we didn't know if it was gonna succeed or not succeed. But basically what we would do is we would leave him in with Ellie and then initially it was three times a day, um, three to four times a day, kind of in the very beginning, but he would get, we would go in, do as little contact as possible, uh, as much as you could do with still giving an animal a bottle. And we did that for, you know, the first 
at least three or four months of his life in terms of going in there, giving him a bottle and then getting out as quickly as possible, making sure, even though it was extremely hard when he was a baby to try not to do at as little as kind of contact as possible, just because again, we didn't, we did not want to create a situation where it was going to be extremely dangerous as Marky Mark got older and, uh, it worked out. It was a hundred percent success. So I think he will be one as he gets a little older, a little more confident, he will come up to tours and stuff just like our other two do. But, um, he is definitely takes after his mother being a little more on the Shire side. So we are very fortunate and very happy with the results of having to do a situation like that. Cause it could have easily been the opposite way to where he just started to become a little more aggressive, uh, being a little too friendly. And if we were going to have that situation, then we were going to have to kind of think about what our long term, long term plan was going to be for him. So, uh, kind of a little unique type of growing up that he had to do just because of Ellie not having the amount of milk that she needed to kind of take care of him uh, just by herself. And the male is probably close to 900 pounds. Yeah, 900 if not pushing close to 1,000 pounds by now. And Ellie is probably 7 to 7 to 8, maybe. yeah. But they can still jump more than what most people think they can. Oh, yeah. So... So the elands are the largest antelope species on the planet. There's actually two different subspecies of elands. So there's the common eland and the greater eland. So the common eland is what we have, which is just a tad smaller than the greater eland. So the greater eland is technically the largest antelope species. Like also the gold Lord Derby eland. Oh yeah. So there's so like I said, the eland species is the largest antelope, and you're talking males can get up to 12, 12 to fifteen hundred pounds, and the incredible thing about Elands is even with their body size, as big as they are, they still are incredible jumpers. So technically, and I would never say that ours would do this because captive, captive animals and compared to wild animals, they are just to a certain extent hardwired a different way. So out in the wild, Elands can easily jump over eight foot fence and sometimes even 10 foot fence. So if you can imagine an animal that's over a thousand pounds being able to get that far off the ground, it's just absolutely insane. Ours, uh, probably the most we've ever seen them jump is, you know, six feet. Um, kind of sometimes when we're really kind of pushing them around, doing vet work on them in the alleyways and stuff, they will show that a little bit, but an animal to do something like that, they have to be extremely motivated. So out in the wild, if they're trying to escape a predator, or something like that, then that is a little more of a push for them to do those sort of sort of uh, behaviors than what what we would ever see with ours. But it is still an incredible incredible fact that just an animal that size can generate that much power. And for most of the time, they do it like they're not even trying. Like they don't even have to be a dead sprint or anything like that to build up speed to get that high off the ground. It's just literally something that they can they can kind of just do in a whim um, if given the right circumstances, situation that's around them. So might be go towards a little uh, little kind of a misconception when it comes to elands is this, you wouldn't think that they would have that capacity in them just because of how big they are. I mean, you're talking about literally a small horse being able to jump over over 10 feet. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
with that, that kind of concludes this episode. We appreciate you guys tuning in and look forward to seeing you next time. Later. <laughs>